Yeah. And what about when they told you they're like, you're not always going to have a calculator in your pocket. And you're like, like, yeah, I have my watch right now. Thanks a lot, math teachers. Just kidding. (laughs) There's a lot to life and we're figuring it out because who knows? We don't. I'm Jonah. And I'm Jack. This is the podcast of our crusade to be at least mediocre at everything. And things might sound a little bit different because I am not with Jack. I'm actually in Denver, Colorado with with Miss Chloe. And today we're going to be talking about education, equity in the classroom, breaking down barriers, advocating for your students, and just understanding a little bit more about culturally responsive teaching. Yeah, thanks for having me. We want to start this off as well by asking, who are you? (laughs) Um, so currently I'm a middle school language arts teacher. I teach sixth and eighth grade at a public school in Denver, Colorado. I'm also a master's student. So I'm finishing my master program this June. Um, and I attend the university of Denver. Oh, wow. Why is it called language arts? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my, that's a really good question, Jack. You know, our use of language is an art. Mm -hmm. And so, and how we use our language and our voice, like, is different to all of us, Mm -hmm. which is like, that's like part of the reason I like teaching language arts is because it's more about using your language to like better understand yourself and also the world around you. Mm, Beautiful answer. Uh, My question is, why did you pursue teaching over any other profession? You know, I think that there's something that is ingrained in teachers. Like there is like a part of it that's like, it's who you are. And so I feel like it was always who I was. And then I kind of just had like an epiphany when I was in my senior year of high school where I was like, I should be an English teacher. Like it'll help me like travel places and you know, I think I'll be really good at it. And so, and then, so unlike many people, I went into college being like, I'm going to do this specific thing. And I think that like my two most significant teachers were both English teachers. Oh, yep. Do you think that like having a significant teacher in your life shapes what subject teachers are going to teach? Hmm. That's a good question. Yeah, I think it could. Mm -hmm. I think it's like a privilege to have a really good teacher or somebody who like to have the type of teacher that does help you like realize what your trajectory is going to be. Yeah. Because not everyone has that. Yeah. Well, it was like, and you know, I've really thought about it recently because I took a class that was transformational teaching. And that was like one of the things that they asked us. And I think that the professor who taught that class was my first actual transformational teacher. Mm. And so that was kind of interesting. Chloe, you've been teaching for nine years. Yes. That's a long time. Do you want to give us a little rundown of like where you've taught all that stuff? Um, so I got my undergrad in Flagstaff from Northern Arizona University. And then I student taught in Flagstaff as well. Mm. So I student taught with seventh grade language arts. I was told that middle school 
was the hardest. <laughs> it was the most difficult to teach. And if you could teach middle school, you could teach anything. So I was like, let's do seventh grade. Mm-hmm. So I student taught with seventh grade. And then I did really want to travel. That was like a really big goal of mine. It was to teach and then also be able to like travel other places. And so after I graduated, I didn't apply for any jobs in Arizona. And then someone my mom knows uh, was a principal at a school in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. Wow. It's like an hour away from Dubai. Mm-hmm. So I taught there for, uh, I taught there for six years. And the first year I taught there, I taught middle school. Yeah, the first year in middle school, and then I taught grade 10, and then I kind of ended up teaching everything. So, like, I taught grade 10 for five years, um, but I also taught 8th, ninth, and then 12th grade for two years as well. Mm -hmm. So, then I taught at a private school here in Denver for one year, and then I didn't really like it. And so, (laughs) I decided that it was important to get into the public school, understand the hierarchies and like what that really looks like on a bigger level. Yeah. All over the place. What's the biggest difference between like teaching overseas versus here, private versus public? You know, you have three very different experiences, I'd say. Yeah. Well, I think my ex expectation coming back to the States was that they were going to like have it more together or like, but I feel like they don't. Um, I feel like an, <laughs> all education and <laughs> a similarity between all three is that, you know, there's some confusing systems in place. Public education does it because of policy. And sometimes other things happen out of not knowing any better. Mm-hmm. The biggest thing with public education is standardized testing. And so mm-hmm. I teach language arts, which is a test or a subject that is tested in middle school and those scores are posted publicly it's how our school gets like rated and um also it's like so in denver because of in the past there was like busing um when schools were um desegregated they started busing in and to try to retroactive that policy they put in something called school choice which in theory sounds like it's supposed to be better which basically means if you live in denver public school boundaries then you can choose whatever school you go to Mm -hmm. so you can go to any school um but what this does is that there's been like a large number of charters coming in and then pushing out schools that have historically been there for a very long time. Again, pitting schools against each other based on these like test scores. Mm -hmm. So what happens like as an impact of that is that there's a lot of pressure put on my classroom to perform really well on tests. And so what ends up happening is that public education pushes you to teach to the test, Mm -hmm. which is not a pressure um, in private education, like they took map testing, Mm -hmm. but map testing is something that like adjusts when you take it. So it's on the computer, still standards aligned, but if you get a question wrong, it gives you like an easier question next, which actually does like a lot of good things for the brain because it helps you not feel like you're just like 
continuously getting these questions wrong, right? Hmm. Whereas like the standardized testing here in Colorado is not designed like that. You're a master's student, also teaching. You got a lot going on. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what your master's program is? Yes. Um, So my master's is in curriculum and instruction. And then um, I have an emphasis with culturally and linguistically diverse students, which is kind of a mouthful to say. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, I'm trying to think of like the term that you would have used or maybe heard in school, but like it's students that are emerging bilinguals. So students who speak and have another first language, like a whole language. ESL is what I remember. ESL is what you remember, yeah. Yeah. So they've changed the term quite a bit because it's kind of, um, it's trying to be like more inclusive Mm -hmm. because realistically the percentage of students that are labeled ELL, like English language learners, Mm -hmm. um, is a very high percentage in public schools and it's predicted to be higher as we continue forward. So a lot of students who speak multiple languages. Yeah. Wow. Um, that was me as a kid. (laughs) Did you like take special classes? Mm -mm. I don't. (laughs) Nope. Nope. I don't know how I learned English. I will tell you that a hundred percent. It's impressive. Cause I, my, my parents didn't speak English growing up, you know, like when I was, I mean, they still really don't speak English and I don't recall, you know, like they didn't teach me English or anything like that, but I, 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 I remember getting to kindergarten and then all of a sudden I just knew English. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. No, I, I'm sure there's a lapse in memory, but I, I just, I don't know. I wonder how I learned English. Well, you pick it up a lot faster at a younger age. Mm -hmm. And so like, for instance, that's like why they tell you to like speak to your kids as they grow up in both languages because yeah. it's like so much easier for them to learn than it is when you're later. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Just thrown in there. Yeah, joke. just thrown in there. My God. I don't think I, I, I never took ESL or anything like that. Well, thanks for sharing that, Jack. I didn't. That's interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Just to kind of break down. I don't know, like maybe just give us some definitions that we should know. Okay. Um, so the first one I would say would be curriculum. And a lot of people, there's kind of like a vast understanding of what curriculum is. Um, curriculum is like everything that makes up a school in terms of like how um, problems are handled and, you know, your overall like philosophy of how you're implementing things as well as the books, the lesson plan. So it's actually like a very broad spectrum of what curriculum really is. And then pedagogy is the next word I would talk about. And that is like the practice of actually teaching. So that's like, Mm. and I would say that curriculum and both and pedagogy are both philosophies. So, and yeah, another word I think that would just be like interesting to know is that epistemology is the philosophy or like the theory of how we know something. 
And so it would be important to recognize that we still don't understand or know how to specifically measure understanding. Like that's still just a philosophy. I thought the curriculum was lesson plans. That's it. Yeah. I think that's like most commonly how that term is used. Mm -hmm. And like, that's what we really talked about. My intro to curriculum class is like, what is your definition of curriculum? Because it's a very broad spectrum of how people use it. Some people, yeah, literally just think it's like this book of lesson of scripted lesson plans. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's really like a, an all encompassing idea. Yeah. And I mean, there's philosophy and theories to everything. So it only makes sense to, that there is philosophy and theories to teaching kind of like how, you know, Jonah and I were very used to, you know, philosophies and theories of, of public health and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. What's instruction is instruction pedagogy. Mm -hmm. Okay. So are those interchangeable almost? Mm -hmm. Okay. You work now, you know, at a public school, mm -hmm. like we were kind of, you know, discussing all the different experiences that you've had. You focus a lot on culturally responsive teaching and just being culturally responsive in general. Yeah. Like in your everyday life, this is not just in the classroom. You know, my thought and question is, so we're all aware of how power structures influence different systems. Like I'm a social worker, so like I recognize these in like a macro system, a meso, like things that maybe are specific to social work. But uh, can you help us better understand power structures in education and then also like in your classroom and then what you do to sort of, you know, approach that, I guess. Um, okay. So to not go into too much history, I would say it's imp important that we acknowledge the history of the industry of public education in America. And so like from the start, it was racist. I mean, it was segregated. Um, who was able to go to school? was, you know, based on boys were able to go to school first. It wasn't girls that started going to later. Um, and we think about kind of like all these systems that were in place in the beginning. And the real intention of public school in the beginning was to create good, like, religious citizens, like Christians. Mm -hmm. So a lot of like our first like curriculum and these like textbooks that were sold um, were based on these like stories or lessons on how to be a good Christian and also how to be a good citizen and love your country. Is, is this American history? Okay. So like back to like the 1700s then. Yes. And so throughout time, these things have shifted and there's a lot of push for like change, but a lot of these things still ring true in our society today. And it just takes the constant effort of the teacher to be like, well, of everyone in public education to be working against that because there is so many like racist policies mm -hmm. and just like how we implement stuff. And it's like, we're becoming aware of it now. But when I was in my undergrad, I didn't learn about race, class, and gender. We didn't even talk about race in the classroom. And looking back on it, a lot of the practices I learned in my undergrad were racist and oppressive. Mm. So like, you know, a big turning point for me was to start my master's program and really start to do like that internal work on myself. Like, you know, something that helped me become more aware was because I lived in another country being white, I was like a minority. Mm -hmm. And so like, 
when I lived in Abu Dhabi, that was like the first time I like really even became aware of my race. Mm -hmm. And then when I started to learn more about it, it like all started to make a lot more sense to me. And so now that is like understanding the history and like having to constantly unpack it in myself because sometimes teachers are viewed as just like, you're just giving information and putting it into the student's head. But I don't believe that you can take like the person out of the teacher. And there's like a lot that you can learn from people personally as well. Mm -hmm. And so I guess that would like kind of lead to like what I learned is like a humanizing pedagogy, which is basically based off of four big ideas, identity, community, like understanding power structures. So like social justice and then advocacy. Mm And that's what I tie into every single thing that I do. And I believe that you can tie that into any subject, honestly. Mm -hmm. But those are like how we begin to educate our students so that they understand the systems. Because the thing is, is that we all are in the system and we have to be in it to be able to like profit, right? Like I have to still do my job and, you know, give these standardized assessments because I need to pay my rent. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I just, I have yeah. to, but at the same time, I can explain to my students very explicitly, like this test doesn't actually represent what, you know, mm-hmm. and we have to take it because there's people with more power than me who have decided that we're going to take it. And so here it is. I just lay it out flat for them. That's awesome. I would be like, damn, teach, you keeping it real. Oh my gosh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, and I think that that falls in line a lot with like, so a humanizing pedagogy and like tying your curriculum to that helps create those kinds of relationships in your classroom. And Jonah, like you said, like, so I first break down and introduce power structures by talking about myself. Mm-hmm. So in the classroom, who holds power? And, you know, I asked my students and then oh, sometimes it takes some a minute to like figure out what huh, you I'm like, yeah, me, <laughs> <laughs> I'm the one in power. Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, <laughs> but then I like, we explain how we share power and how like everyone in our class has knowledge that everyone can benefit from. So like I explain to my students that I want to learn from them as well, that their perspective is like valuable and that everyone can like, like gain something from that. Mm. Wow. It sounds like such an empowering way. And like, I feel like if I was what, 12 mm-hmm. and I was in a class where my teacher made it a point to make me feel empowered and smart rather than like they're just putting knowledge in my brain, mm-hmm. I would have cared a lot more about school. Yeah you know, and like figured out my passions. Yes. I mean, that's always the hope. (laughs) So I like have my students create their own expectations. So we like set, like we like spend like an entire week in the beginning of their quarter, Mm -hmm. just setting like community expectations, like Mm -hmm. talking about like what we want our classroom to look like. And Yeah. And it's good. And then our first thing is always like you're human first. And so something that I explained to my students is that like, it's not human to be a hundred percent, a hundred percent of the time. Like you're just going to like have days where you're not like feeling like doing things. 
it's also a pandemic, which we have to like remember too that like the students that I serve, like I'm in a place of privilege as like a white single teacher, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of my students are experiencing a lot of like trauma from having to be in homes that maybe they don't feel safe in from, you know, I mean, also just not being able to like see their friends and stuff. Mm -hmm. Like trauma isn't necessarily about like what the situation is. It's about how that student is feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Snaps to that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such a, uh, I, I guess progressive way to to approach teaching, um, and it's it's the pedagogy that no. <laughs> uh, you know your your pedagogy. Am I am I using this correctly? That is you know like fuels how you approach your students and and this power dynamic in the classroom. And like ultimately, giving more power to my students makes my job easier. It gives me, I have better relationships with my students. And also like I give them tons of responsibilities. Like I'm not the only person in the class that can answer questions. Mm -hmm. So like I'll always tell them like they can type whatever they want into like the chat and anyone can answer it. Or like I post like a link on their Schoology page and like one of my students will like go on and get the link and they'll send it to everyone. So I'm like, it's just easier. I have less things to do because... I give them responsibility and they love it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like you're one honoring their identity and then you're creating a, a cohesive community where people are empowering each other, uh, which you advocate for your students. And I'm sure they advocate for each other. Yes. What was the fourth one? Oh, oh social justice. Social justice. Yeah. 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 I mean, speaking of that, <laughs> uh, you know, 2020 has been a year for all of us. Um, And I've said this before, and I'll say it a hundred times again, we're kind of going through a great unlearning, especially white people or people who Uh are benefiting from white privilege. And so as a teacher who works primarily with BIPOC or um, just students of color, how is the experience of sort of like a social justice, yeah, social justice movement, how has this like affected your classroom, if, if it has at all? I'm just trying to think of how to start to answer that. Okay. So the first thing that I would address is that these problems are not new in education. So like, while hopefully like the things that have happened this year have caused like a lot more people to wake up to them. Like we've known, a lot of people have known that these problems have existed for a very long time for, I mean, since the start of public education. (laughs) So, uh, (laughs) but then I would also say that like, I don't know. Sometimes I feel weird when teachers talk about like their students and say like, oh, I work at like a title one school or, oh, I work in this neighborhood. Um, I think that this work is important for every teacher and like, it's important for every student to be learning as well, not just students of color. Mm -hmm. And like, honestly, like almost more importantly, white students need to be learning about it too. So yeah, so I don't know, in my classroom, like I try to pull in um, current event stuff. I really try to focus on advocacy. So like um, another kind of like misstep in education sometimes is that like 
we just like want to add this checkbox on and they're like, okay, we're going to make things more inclusive by like adding in these like black authors or like having more like of these pieces of education. But like, if we're genuinely not teaching the curriculum in a way that is like humanizing to our students and like advocating for the fact that there's a lot of different voices like as a white teacher, like I can't say that like what my knowledge of the civil rights movement is the only perspective of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's like a, a multiple perspectives over all of these different things. And I think that that's like also important to communicate to students as well, mm-hmm. is that there is just this like, there's many voices in all of this. Um, and it's not just like one way. And so we kind of, I don't know, I, I spend a lot of time letting my students talk about things. So like, it is important to me for like, I ask questions, but then they're like expected to like share like their own opinions or like what their experiences are. So, you know, a lot of my students will share experiences or their like knowledge of like protests or things that are happening within our community. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Wow. You know, it's so much. (laughs) I feel like from, you know, hearing you talk about your classes and your students and stuff, it sounds like they also participate a lot mm-hmm. because you create a, an environment where they want to participate. Yeah. And that's always interesting to me with teachers on social media is that like teachers have a tendency to complain about students on social media. Mm-hmm. I mean, teachers have a tendency to complain about students in the teacher's lounge. It's just like <laughs> now become public because everyone's at home. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. And you know, that was something that I was taught in my undergrad that was like, stay away from the teacher's lounge because you know, they have a negative narrative about students. And like, there's been times where I've had to consciously just like walk away from a situation. Cause I'm like, my mindset can never be this like, or I won't do my job. Mm-hmm. Like, why would I be here if I truly didn't like care and like want the best for my students? Um, do you think that your approach to how you teach and provide space to your students and all this stuff, like it's nothing that we saw as kids, you know, I'm sure a lot of people don't see it in the classrooms with, you know, with other teachers and all that kind of stuff. Um, or is this something that's being taught as well to new and emerging teachers? Mm. Yeah, I would say it's definitely become like more relevant. Um, I am lucky that I go to such a liberal progressive university, like genuinely, Mm -hmm. because I've like learned this, you know, and I have professors that are people of color and, you know, like I have a lot of diversity within my program, but yes, I think it is. I just think it's like pretty, it's smaller right now, but there is like a lot of teachers that know this, but the reality of public education is that there's a lot of barriers in place to actually do these things. And so to be able to teach and do what I want in class, I put a lot of work and time and thoughtfulness into it and I'm not paid for that. And so it becomes this narrative of like, do you always have to be the teacher that is working way over your time to be able to be a good teacher? And it's just like, I think that we can if the whole system supported it, but you have to do a lot of your own work Mm -hmm. and write, you know, my, my school provides me a curriculum, but I write my own. Mm -hmm. And so what ends up happening is that we get teachers who are burned out by a system that mistreats them. Mm -hmm. 
and doesn't give them voice. I mean, similar to our students, right? Um, like we're also, uh, in the power structure of having to listen to people who are our administrators who have maybe not been in the classroom for a long time. So, yeah. So I would say that there's, it's, it's a thought. It's like a lot of people know about it, but the reality is, is like, are we actually seeing it in schools? And I would say no. Mm, Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. We want all the kids out there to to be taught in this very, I don't know, like fascinating way that's going to help them be better people and good humans. But I feel like the reality is that that's not happening. As as much as there are passionate teachers out there, fantastic teachers, they might be hitting those barriers that you're talking about, or they're just not, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, they might have the best intentions, the best curriculum, the best pedagogy or whatever it is, but they aren't able to do this just because they're not there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and that's like why I think it's like important for, I mean, white teachers, white females make up about 80% of the teaching population of public school teachers and almost exactly invertly um, to the students. It's like uh, a very high percentage of students are, you know, people of color, Mm -hmm. students of color. Um, And very few of them are white, which is, because a lot of white students are in like private education. How do you address that with your students? Do you, do you address that right on? Do you talk about privilege? I mean, I know that mm-hmm. you, you talk about power structures with your students, but do you talk about. So we do like, ident- like we start to like figure out our own identities and we like share them with the class. And so, um, I mean, I know a lot of adults that don't know the term intersectionality, but it's like the multiple things that make up your identity. And so my sixth graders can tell you that. Um, And then they know what their intersectionalities are. So we spend some time talking about that. Um, And then I talk about mine. I'm Mm -hmm. like super open. Yeah. I'm somebody who benefits from white privilege. Mm -hmm. Like there are things that are unfair about our system, but like we also need to like be talking about them. Um, I think that this, is because I've done a lot of work on myself where I like work really hard to like unpack my own internalized white supremacy. And I feel like other teachers need to be working towards that as well. Um, And so I think that that's like the place where it stops sometimes too, where teachers can have the best of intentions, but we know that harm can be done. Oh yeah. Oppression can happen Mm -hmm. no matter like what your intentions are. Yeah intentions are in to, are the backseat to impact mm-hmm. and then also people are well-meaning all the time but well-meaning people don't always have a very good impact on communities exactly you know, people in general so yes that's tough true <laughs> you know we were talking a little bit earlier about burnout you were talking about not having enough like resources and all of these different barriers uh for teachers and uh, people in the school like what advice would you give teachers uh, who are experiencing burnout, especially in a virtual setting too? Yeah. Well, okay. So I feel like there's like a couple things to kind of say about this with yeah. teacher burnout. I think that it's really important that teachers reflect on their praxi- practices and like don't necessarily think that what they're doing is right. It's like, don't hold on to your ideas too tightly ever because it's okay if you've been taught this way and it's wrong, but like be open to hearing about other things too. So I think that like 
just having an open mind that like, I know that it can be frustrating to teach this one way for a long time and then go into virtual and not have that work anymore. But it's like view that as an opportunity for like positive change as opposed to just saying it doesn't work because I've created virtual classroom communities. And again, like they're, they're possible, but it's because I believe that they are. And I like tell my students that they are. And, you know, granted, most of my students have their cameras turned off during class, like, but it is what it is. They unmute, they type in the chat. Like I have tons of participation without necessarily their cameras being on. So Mm. And then um, also to like kind of just tag on to that, I created a TikTok account mm-hmm. and um, <laughs> my my username is Miss Chloe Hodson, if you're interested. Yeah, um, love it. But, you know, something that interests me is the ability to like advocate or like inspire and support other teachers. Um, that's like something I would like to get into. And I feel like helping other white teachers like unpack their internalized white supremacy, if they're open to it, um, is something that's going to make their lives easier and make them like enjoy their jobs. I mean, I love teaching, like even virtually, Mm -hmm. like I've, you know, I teach four different classes and it's fun. I like, love it. I love my students. They're awesome. And so it's like heartbreaking to see so many teachers online complaining about all this stuff. And it's like, reflect on like what you're doing because ultimately like you're the adult and you have the power to control the situation. Mm -hmm. And so maybe it doesn't look like what it used to look like anymore. And that's like, that's probably how I would best like classify myself as like an abolitionist teacher, like somebody who thinks that these systems are, they're not broken. They're working exactly how they were intended to work. Like we need to change the system. Mm -hmm. So like for that, that looks like a couple of ways. And like also something that I always want to tell other teachers is like, you have so much power. Like you are an important person. Like you have the ability to like change the trajectory of your student's life. Mm -hmm. So like own it, right? Like use that power to give back to your students and then also advocate for yourself as well. Cause I feel like, you know, there's teachers that are stuck in schools that they're unhappy with. It's like, leave, Mm -hmm. like you should care about yourself too. Like you're, and it's hard to say that to teachers now that are like, oh, we're given so much more. I have double the meetings that I ever had in person now that I'm virtual. Mm -hmm. So it's just like so much time of my time is accounted for with just all these meetings. It's crazy. But I also encourage teachers to advocate and ask for what they want more. And sometimes I think that we expect, you know, they policy changes and then we expect teachers just to do it. And I think that if we start like pushing back on that more, then we can change the system. Also, if we think about power structures, um, power is like bottom down, right? But revolution typically happens from like the bottom up. And a lot of teachers can attest to that in public schools, you know, there's a lot of behavior management and there's a lot of different situations happening, which if we rethought these thought these structures completely, like kids are students are already saying we don't like this. Mm-hmm. That's been happening for a long time. And they might not totally understand why they don't like it, but it's because we're taking away students' power by stripping them of their identity and saying that there's only one right answer. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, I got chill. <laughs> I have chill. That is so true. Just talking about TikTok and just like social media in general, it's hard for me because I know teachers, and this isn't just teachers, this could be social workers, this could be literally anybody who works with people. Mm-hmm. They can go on there and they could complain or whatever, kind of like the teacher's lounge situation. And I just like, I'm flabbergasted by it constantly because what these, I feel like these people aren't thinking about is that like, let's say TikTok, an example, there's a lot of teachers on there who are making jokes, whether or not it's real, it doesn't matter because uh, the, you know, I think a majority of the folks on TikTok are younger, obviously. And so the people who are seeing these videos or these memes or whatever are students. And so they're having these people who are in power, these teachers making jokes and talking about how bad their school is or how bad their students are, especially virtual learning. I'm just like honestly shook by it on a daily basis because I can't imagine being a student and then seeing my own teacher on a platform on the internet talking, making jokes about the class, even if they're just jokes. I feel like that would take my power away from me like as a student or somebody who even wants to participate in the class. And I know Chloe's like kind of done the opposite of that, you know, on social media platforms where you're trying to give power back to the students and to give power back to the teachers who feel that it's necessary or okay to sort of air out their dirty laundry online. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, so I did it. I dressed another teacher who posted a video like this on TikTok. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and what ended up happening was that a bunch of other teachers commented and were upset about my video and saying that, you know, I came for her. How could I do that during COVID to another teacher, you know? But I think that it's like really important to remember that like, we all need to be accountable for our behavior all the time. And as a teacher, like you've taken on this responsibility, like you, I don't step into the classroom and then I'm only a teacher then like I still practice who I am or work on myself as like a good person, like in and out of the classroom. And I just feel like that's who your students are seeing, Mm -hmm. right? Like, like you said, and maybe if I saw that of a teacher, I wouldn't want to like try in their class or I wouldn't really care anymore. Yeah. And it's okay for people to take, to misstep. And then it's okay to receive constructive feedback from your peers. You know what I mean? So like, it's funny that you were like, Hey, maybe like, don't post stuff like this. Like, Mm -hmm. let's kind of like unpack this, like that maybe this is what you can do because you, like I saw your video and it was very thoughtful. It was like, maybe this is a joke. Let's kind of talk about it. And I felt like it was a good learning opportunity. And so when people are so quick to be defensive, I mean, it's like white fragility almost, you know, it's like hundred percent. Yeah. They're not accepting feedback. And so it's okay for them to, to fuck up or make mistakes like this, but also be accountable. And that's okay. Like I mess up all the time. And if people, when people hold me accountable, I'm not upset. You know, I'm like, Oh shit. Okay. Let's, let's kind of reflect and think about what got me here. You know? Well, and I think what kind of like the system does to us, especially in places of power and especially amongst women in our society is that we pit women and teachers against each other. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times teachers feel like they must be the Pinterest teacher. They're very stressed out about continuing to hold this power. If we view teaching like art, then we like understand that it's like a practice that we're like always working on and it modifies and changes. And also if you're like holding your power, like, 
lightly and your ideas lightly, then you're more open to change. So I think that like part of, you know, the unlearning is understanding that teachers can see that new practices and different things can be valuable as well. And that to challenge the ideas that they've always had, but ultimately overall to empower other teachers. Like I want to support other professionals in their field. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, kind of going along with teachers too, um, you know, not everyone who is listening is necessarily a teacher, but, you know, I think we might have a lot of listeners who are parents or know someone who is in school or we were all once in school. And, and so what's like some of your advice for helping kind of challenge the system a little bit more, um, and, and fighting for having teachers who are more progressive and hold things like identity and power dynamics to a higher standard than what we were used to as kids. I'd say that it takes some unlearning. So I feel like all my advice to teachers is to understand that this isn't like, uh, I started this and then I finished it. Now I'm done. I'm good to go. Like we're all in this process together. And I think that if teachers acknowledge that they are in a process of unlearning and continuing to change, then we can all be like more graceful of each other in the sense that like, we'll be able to hold our, you know, teachers accountable for their behavior in a way that they're not going to be like defensive about it necessarily, which is kind of just what happens a lot. Another piece of advice I would just give is like, to just give your students grace. You know, I just always assume the best of my students. Always. I communicate with parents when, you know, a lot of things aren't turned in or, you know, I, I want to reach out their sixth graders. They need support from their parents as well. Um, but my communication to parents is always like, you know, are they okay first, right? Like it's most important that you're doing okay. And if you're not now I can know about it and I can help support you in that way. Um, but to not, to not get upset with students, you know, and I think that it's just, it's easier for you as a teacher to, to just like let stuff go and not like have be such a big deal. So, yeah. And that's kind of like, that kind of reminds me of like in social work, I've learned that I need to take my ego out of it. Yes. I can't have my own assumptions of and expectations of what could be like what one person or a client could view as like something successful. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's not about me. It's about them. And so kind of taking your ego out of it and not being upset or taking things personally, because more than a hundred, I'll say 99.9% of the time, it's probably not about you, Mm -hmm. you know? And whatever you're doing, whether you're a teacher, whether you're anything, you know, it's, I would just take, you know, take your ego out of it. It would probably be helpful. hundred percent. And if, you know, if education is truly to support students, then we should be supporting students in the ways that they need support. Yes. A thousand percent. Yeah. So, you know, complaining about, students not turning work in it's like well have you talked to them individually about how their lives are going like what's happening at home have you asked them what they're interested in learning about 
you know, and like, that's something I do in the beginning of the year too. And actually that's probably the other piece of advice is just like, talk to your students more like ask them more questions about what they like. Because in the beginning of my quarter, I give my students like a little survey on their like preferences. So some students like when I say their name over the Google meet to tell them to get to work. Some other students that traumatizes them. Mm-hmm. So I have like a list for each class of like, if they're not on task, I can call them out, but if they aren't, you know, and then there's other students that I just like message. So like ask them what they feel comfortable with. And then once they see that you're like literally willing to do anything for them, they return it. Like I've gotten some of the best writing from sixth graders that I ever have, like during the pandemic. And like, is a hundred percent of the class doing the work? No, but like, that's not the point. Like you're teaching who is there the best that you possibly can. And if they can't be there, maybe they have something more important that they need to learn. Or like, maybe they need to just learn that a teacher can like have grace and let you turn things in late or, Mm -hmm. you know, because that's like, that's the other thing that's interesting that I get from teachers too, is that they want to say, that school's their job. Well, they need to come to school. It's their job. I'm like, well, who's learning actually for? Who? Is it to make, force them to memorize this information or is it supposed to help them? Because if it's supposed to help them, then maybe it looks a little bit different. Like, seriously, I'm having a spiritual moment here. It's making me almost emotional because it's so true. And, and it's sad to me that, you know, I've been in school for, what? 20 years, I feel like (laughs) I just finished my program. And it's like, I feel like I don't have, I I feel like I've never had a teacher ask me my preference. You know what I mean? Like ask me my preferences or be culturally responsive. And I did a, I did a social work master's program and they were probably more, you know, culturally responsive, but still this makes me really excited Well, and then that's, that's part of the goal of abolition teaching. It's like giving the tools to your students to help them advocate within the system that they are in, right? Mm -hmm. A system that is typically stacked against them. Mm -hmm. It's like, how do you get that? And, you know, one way is like teaching my students to ask questions. Yeah. Yeah. At least for me as a kid, and, and I'm sure most of us, school and learning was, surrounded by fears of failure and and shame and anxiety and all that kind of stuff because like you're you didn't turn in the assignment now I feel bad about it you know I got this answer wrong you know like and now I feel like a dummy and and things like that whereas you know this is thinking about these students as people and as kind of like as adults and you know what's going on and having that positive intent and 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 just really caring about them and taking away that shame and guilt and and negativity and then like on top of that like holding them to super high expectations Mm -hmm. yeah i don't know genuinely just telling my students that i believe in them and like there's like some things too like just that typical practices that I've started to use to help me like unpack my bias towards students in the classroom. And that's by like tracking behavior or like times that I like said something to a student or 
had to, you know, get them back on track or do something. And once I tracked that, I could see like patterns. Mm. And so it's like, all right, well, why, why am I getting or having to speak to these black boy male students, right? In one of my classes, why am I doing that? Like, oh, well, one of them is like really loud all of the time. Like, is it necessarily disrupting anyone else? Is he, is he on task? Is he asking questions? Like, those kinds of things help me like break that down and like really minimize the time that I'm, you know, talking to a student or asking like to redirect. It's like overall, I want my like class to be able to do that. Our school had some gun violence last year, which was like pretty hard for, I think like our students. And then, I mean, also uh, our teachers. Yeah. And so something that I asked one of my professors was like, what could I be doing for their like mental health or like to support them? And she's like, just give them like verbal gratitudes. Like just tell them that you're like thankful and like so grateful that they're there for like specific reasons. And then I just track it and I do that even virtually too. So like within a month's time, I will have said a verbal gratitude to like everyone in all my classes. And then I just like tick their name off. So like it's little stuff. It's like systematic. Like I can do it in this way where I track it, but it's something where like everyone gets a verbal gratitude during class time. Like it's something that's like supportive to them. So. Wow. Simple. Simple. Yeah. But goes a long way. I mean, all, all really cool things and, and your approach to the classroom and your approach to teaching. And I think it's something that, you know, hopefully some some teachers listening can glean from. Hopefully some parents and, and those who have kids or know kids, um, you know, like this is something that we can all really think about and, and put into action about how we approach teaching and, you know, like classroom equality and, you know, like the the power systems and, the, and, and, and teaching and, and that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I feel like my mind is beyond blown at this point <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like it's even more relevant for non-teachers because mm-hmm. i've never thought about just how much goes into being a culturally responsive teacher and creating equitable classrooms and all of these different things it's just it's really blowing my mind because you know as you know jack obviously uh, we wanted to learn more about what people are passionate about and this is huge and it's making me feel really hopeful for the future too because if we're advocating for our students such as you know like chloe is and you know other teachers who uh have a similar pedagogy i feel like our you know the future of the world is going to be better because people are going to be more empowered and be more interested in social justice and social change and i feel like you know this is this is awesome. You know, we're not just doing scripted lesson plans. We're really doing a lot of critical thinking with our, with our students. And hopefully we'll have a little bit, a shift in power structures that create a lot of barriers for equity. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, so I guess looking forward, what's, what's to come? Like what's, what's next? It's kind of a big question. Uh, well, the interesting part about teaching my students to advocate for themselves is that like, I feel like I've become better at advocating for myself too. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been better at like vocalizing like what I need from my like direct administrator. Um, and so as I finish my master's, I want to ask for 
some more responsibility or like a chance to have more of a say in the curriculum at my current school. Um, I would eventually like to go into a position where I was able to help and like work with teachers directly. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also I like am considering getting a doctorate, but I think I would like to work for another year or two to wait and see, but I want to keep my foot in the classroom for like as long as possible. I feel like, there's a certain level of understanding when you are a teacher that you lose even after a year of not being in the classroom. And so to kind of keep, like, I would like to continue to like advocate for other teachers, but while still in the classroom too. If you wanted to, to impact teachers and the education system and all that kind of stuff, like does this ultimately go to like I don't know like does the secretary of education need to hear this does you know first first lady Dr. Jill Biden need to hear more about this like what what do we need to do I mean it's a good question because I mean I guess mine would just say to abolish standardized testing boom all right Dr. Jill Biden listen up I'm gonna write her a really strongly worded letter no more standardized testing yeah And like teachers need to start like pushing back and saying no against this stuff. And I think that that's like true within public education as a whole. It's just like we need to start saying like this is not okay to be testing our students during a pandemic. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like actual trauma and violence to our students. Mm So I think that teachers need to be talking about it. I think that more teachers need to have like a voice in policy as well. And that's like another problem is that a lot of the people that like vote on policy that directly affects our classrooms are not indeed teachers. Mm -hmm. And so to not like, I mean, that's happening now, but it's like still not enough. So I'm like run, basically just run for public office and then. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Both of you need to run for public office and then, uh, you know, just really advocate for education, but. Okay. You know, got like the the problem, not the problem, but like part of the hard the hard difficult part of this is that a lot of education has been written into like our state's constitutions, and so those types of changes take a long time. Mm-hmm. And so I'd say that like, yeah, just to keep talking about it, advocating for it, change happens very slowly, but it doesn't mean that it's not happening. Yeah. Wow. Well. Very, very enlightening. We will try our best to to do what we can. I hope all the listeners out there are, you know, like the wheels are turning in your head like it is mine. But, you know, this is this is step one is learning, becoming enlightened, and, and hopefully we can make a, a change in impact here. I got one final question for you, Chloe. If, you know, there's one thing that you can master, there's something that you don't know how to do, but want to know how to do, what would that thing be? There's a lot of things that I would like to know how to do. Um, but one thing would be to learn Spanish in particular, you know, if I could like master another language, that would be awesome. I've always like wanted to move to a country where I had to like learn the language, but our language like changes the way that you perceive the world and it helps you like understand it in a different way. So that's Mm -hmm. why I think I would want to like master another language. Perfect. Awesome. I support it, Chloe. 
well, thank you so much, Chloe, for for being here with us and and sharing so much about you know your experience and your, I guess everything. I mean, I'm sure this isn't everything, but so much of what you know and like you know we've been saying like our our minds are just blown right now about the classroom and and teaching. Um, so thank you so much. If uh, anyone wants to follow you or learn a little bit more about you, reach out to you. What's, what's the best way they can do that? My teaching stuff is mostly on TikTok. Mm-hmm. So M-S dot Chloe Hodson. How do you spell Chloe? C-H-L-O-E Hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thanks for having thank me. You. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, Jonah. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah. Let's do it again soon. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Please subscribe and share with your friends. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Who Knows We Don't Pod. You can send us a message uh, with what topics you're interested in hearing more about. And if you want to be a guest on the podcast, we would love to have you on. Please drop us a line. Love you, boo boo. Love you. <laughs>